Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and on today's episode, I sit down with Lewis L. Reed. Lewis and his story are remarkable, as is the work he does currently as Senior Director of Membership and Partnerships at Reform Alliance. In this episode, Lewis and I discuss the significant childhood trauma he faced that led to his involvement in criminal activity and ultimately to his arrest and incarceration. We talk about the importance of education and mentorship on his journey to re-entry and the successful career he has built rebuilding the broken systems that he himself experienced. Let's get into it. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. The things I love most about Castles are the firm's commitment to promoting a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive firm, and their ongoing support of the communities in which they operate. To find out more about Castles, check out castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Okay, can you tell us just a little bit about your background and growing up? That's kind of always where I love to start. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Louis L. Reed. I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. At the age of approximately five years old, both of my parents were incarcerated, and I was raised by my maternal grandmother. And um, when I think about my life uh, trajectory, and when I think about the pathology of mass incarceration, mass arrest and criminalization, particularly in communities that are Black, Brown, and poor white, I was exposed to the school-to-prison pipeline long long before it was even uh, a phrase that was coined. Seeing my both of my parents incarcerated, having been raised by my maternal grandmother, having been shot at the age of 14, where I had to relearn how to walk again. I still have a bullet in my chest, uh, right near my heart and my spine. Uh, it's too close. Uh, it was too close for them to operate. I have a sister who was shot the year before myself in her face by her then boyfriend, having a cousin that was shot a year after me 32 times in front of his mother and ultimately succumbed to his wounds, Um, having a best friend that was shot uh, six times uh, right in front of me um, in the head. Um, My life has literally been uh, replete with a a lot of things that ultimately would have broken someone else. But ultimately, what I've learned is that breakdowns can become breakthroughs. And it's through the the crucible of the aforementioned that I really discovered my purpose. I discovered my passion. And ultimately, I landed into a space of life uh, where I currently am. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm I'm excited at some point to to get into what you're doing right now. Before we get there, can you just share about I mean, that's a lot to be exposed to by that age. What was the impact? on you of all of that? Yeah. So I think that that's a lot to be exposed to at any age. Yeah. We should not live in a a place and time where we have to have situational awareness when we are at a movie theater or when we are just enjoying a dinner um, with our loved ones. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's an extreme amount of trauma to be exposed to when you are five years old. Mm-hmm. when you were 13 years old, when you're 14 years old, et cetera, without question. Um, how has that produced the person that I am now? In one of several ways. I'm a licensed clinician, uh, non-practicing in the state of Connecticut, and I'm also board certified. I learned something that 
in, in psychology we call vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is the trauma that you may not necessarily have been directly impacted by, but you observe it. Mm-hmm. For example, in on um, Memorial Day of 2020, the entire world witnessed vicarious trauma through the likeness of a man in Minneapolis by the name of George Floyd, where we saw Derek Chauvin essentially lynch George Floyd, uh, having his knee on his neck for approximately nine minutes. That's vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. It's the thing that tears at the fabric of, of your heart and your soul. And so I think that those experiences did one of several things. Number one, it perpetuated a mentality for me to continue that pathology of criminality, criminal enterprising. The second thing that it did, it created this, no one is going to hurt me ever again type of mentality. Mm-hmm. Seeing my sister shot, me being shot, me um, having more people who have been killed than who I know entered into college. That is something that no one should be exposed to. Granted, I grew up in the 1990s where it was crack cocaine laden. It was at the height of the so-called crack epidemic, a sprinkle into the mix where there was the the heroin epidemic as well. That's before it hit white folks in Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> now, 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 now it's called now it's called uh, the the rehabilitation on, on on opioids. But back then, it was just a war on black, brown, and poor white folks. Mm-hmm. So, so when you have been exposed to a, a, a lot of those different things, especially when you add and compound that, when your mind is still grown. Mm-hmm. The, 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 you know, the, the human mind is not fully matured, um, particularly in a male until approximately the age of 25. Think of all those things that I was exposed to even before I was 20 years old. It's like putting a child in front of a, uh, a, a television and playing every scary movie that has ever been uh, uh, produced. Jaws, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, the return of Jason, the return of Jason's son, uh, <laughs> and all of those other things combined constantly. There is going, you are going to create, you're going to foster, you are going to facilitate the worst uh, in that person. And I think that that is what I had become more so to myself than, than, than to my community. And what did that look like? Yeah. So it it looked like one of several things. Um, Number one, I got caught up in the criminal enterprise and, you know, trade of uh, selling and distributing crack cocaine. Right. So that tore out the fabric of my community. Um, I I, I bankrupted, uh, you know, other people's families as a result of having, you know, a moderately lucrative career in narcotics trafficking. The second thing that it did was I harmed other people physically, um, people who were in the street as a result of wanting to criminally enterprise, wanting to, quote unquote, take over blocks, wanting to, you know, just establish a reputation in the street. The second thing that it, uh, the third thing that I did, I should say, is that in 2000, uh, I should say 1999, I participated in a, a drive by shooting that consequently injured a then five-year-old child. Um, and that, that drive-by shooting was the result of me being robbed 
by someone. And the, the consequential shooting of that, uh, a five, that then five-year-old child, thank God um, he made a full recovery, uh, et cetera. That really, out of all of the things that I had done in all of the years that I had been involved in the street, that was the singular regret that just ate at me because that could have been my child. Mm-hmm. That could have been my niece. That could have been my nephew. And so I, I think that that's what, that's what that produced in the sum total. Yeah. And I can imagine that shaking you. And what was it immediate? Did it take time? I, I think that that shaking, um, it, was, it was immediate. I mean, you know, within 15 minutes of what, uh, of my participation in that, I had got calls from other people saying, hey, there was an incident that happened around where you uh, were, were robbed at. And there was one person who got shot, but there was a child who got shot. And when I say that, it was like taking a harpoon and shooting a goldfish with it. That, that's what it did to my heart. That took me a long time to recover from. Yeah. And so what happened from there, from that moment? Yeah. So from that moment, I um, was ultimately uh, indicted by the United States government and I was sentenced to a term of uh, imprisonment that was approximately 16 years, Uh, 14, nearly 14 years of that 16 year sentence uh, I served. While I was incarcerated, there was one of three things that happened with me. Uh, The first thing was that unapologetically, I uh, was transformed by the renewing of my mind by the revolutionary principles of Christ. Not necessarily from a spiritual perspective where um, I believe in the redemption of my soul um, on the other side of life, but from a social activism perspective, I, I, I began to realize that I looked around and I saw that there were too many black, brown, and poor white folks who were incarcerated, disproportionately sentenced and excessively prosecuted for the same thing that other people who had access to wealth, resources, affluence, influence, et cetera, they got a fraction of that time. And it lit a righteous indignation in me. And I begin to parallel, I begin to think about how, even if you argue against Jesus's theology, his humanity is irrefutable. And I begin to think about how, as history records, when he was crucified, how invariably he put the Roman criminal justice system on trial. He was himself excessively prosecuted and disproportionately sentenced Mm -hmm. uh, for a crime that in contemporary parlance that it would have uh, a crime that he didn't commit or, you know, that he should have been exonerated for so on and so forth. And I begin to really think about my life in one of several ways. Zoe, one of the things that I I begin to look at my life was uh, retrospectively. What harm did I cause other people? Second, I begin to look at my life introspectively. How had I caused my own harm? And third, I begin to look at my life prospectively. As a result of everything that I had been through, how much had I changed and what change was I going to project into the world? And ultimately, that became my inner brilliance, my, 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 my inner diamond, so to speak, right? Those three points on a diamond. And so... As I begin to look at my life um, in, in those ways, there was something else that happened. I discovered the brilliance of someone who would ultimately be my mentor, an individual by the name of Glenn E. Martin, who at the time was at the Fortune Society. 
And he has a notion, those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from resources and power. And I said to myself, I want to bridge that gap. I, I want to stand in the gap between those individuals who don't have access to resources and power, but they are closest to the solution. Our genius can bring about an impact and we can effectuate outcomes and also uh, impact literally in the world. And so I, I wanted to stand in that gap. And the third thing that happened was an education passport opened up in my, in, in my life where I was able, able to get me a little bit of an education uh, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, just, just really take what I had knew instinctively and give words to it, give some grammatical profundity to it. And, you know, study, study one or two books, <laughs> uh, here two or three quotes by Dr. King. When you sprinkle a little bit of Glenn E. Martin in there uh, and ask Malcolm X, you get Lewis L. Reed. So <laughs> ultimately, that's what ended up happening. So mentorship, I think, is such an important component, as is education. You know, all of these things that you've just spoken to. At what point did Glenn sort of come into your life and did that sort of mentorship relationship develop? Yeah. So, um, you know, I gave you that, that 99 cent word vicarious, uh, earlier, right. I had a vicarious relationship with Glenn while I was incarcerated. Um, I just began to, uh, get as many videos on him as, as I could, uh, through the education staff, uh, and just kind of like look at what the Glenn E. Martin blueprint was at, at the time. Ultimately, when I was released, I um, began my career as a social worker uh, doing permanent supportive housing for people who have been uh, dually diagnosed, people who experience chronic recidivism, and also uh, people who also uh, experience chronic homelessness as well. And I attended a Just, uh, a just Leadership uh, Emerging Leaders uh, training in, in Virginia. This was, you know, Wow, years, it feels like eons ago. I was approximately five years or so ago. And at the time, uh, Zoe, I was attempting to convince the city of Bridgeport, the largest city in Connecticut, to open a government-based office for reentry affairs. It was gonna be the first of its kind in the state. And they were rejecting that proposal. So as a result of ultimately connecting with Glenn through that leadership training, I went back, reproposed the idea to the city of Bridgeport. They accepted it. Uh, not only did they accept it, but they also inaugurated me as the first reentry director. We replicated the model throughout the state. We replicated the model in other states. We won an award for uh, best reentry practices by the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Uh, and I was like, all right, this guy, Glenn Martin, he, he might be he might be on to some. His his leadership principles might be <laughs> might be on. Uh, he might be on to some, and and so I just begin to uh, just lean into him uh, a little bit more, and ultimately I began to take. Um, I, I I applied and was accepted into the year long uh, fellowship program through Just Leadership, and my personal leadership was uh, elevate, elevated even more, and and we've been connected ever since. Okay. So, so much to unpack in there. I want to come back to what the reentry program was doing, but before we get there, I would love to hear about your experience with reentry and how that inspired this work. Yeah. I'm glad that you asked that question. Um, you know, my reentry re experience, um, was indicative and in, in reflect in a reflection of a lot of folks. Um, it was frustrating. You have to consider that 
the reason why I brought that concept to the city of Bridgeport was because when I was released, people, I would go to these so-called re-entry clinics um, that were community-based. And the, the only thing that they were doing was putting you in front of a computer and teaching you a resume writing course and telling you to Google jobs. For someone like myself, I had already knew how to write a resume. I could teach the class on how to resume, write a resume. I already knew how to interview. This is something that I was doing. I was doing, you know, doing clinics while I was incarcerated. I had a, a degree of education, right? So for me, I didn't want a job. I wanted to springboard into a career. And I realized that many people who have been incarcerated, they had that same patty cake experience. While some people didn't even know how to turn a computer on. You have to consider when I went away, they had beepers. When I come home, they have this thing that's called smartphones that's making me feel as stupid and dumb <laughs> as a bag of rocks. And so um, people weren't getting soft skills. People weren't getting um, what it was that they that they needed not to have a job. You have to consider, Zoe, that when you are criminally enterprising, that's a career of the sort. Mm -hmm. And so when you are incarcerated and you pivot from incarceration into society, you don't want a job. You want a, you want a career. You want something that's called 401k. You want something that's called a, a, a Roth IRAs. You, you, you want, you want, you want some, some sustainability and some longevity. And so through that sense of frustration, I said to myself, these systems have to be united, number one. And number two, they have to be streamlined. And so when I conceptualized the, 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 the office, government office uh, for reentry affairs, the notion was to be able to bring the leverage, the power of local government to bring all of the reentry stakeholders at the same table mm -hmm. to say, hey, the mayor's office is invested in the outcomes of people who have been impacted by this issue. And we are all going to work together. If A, you want to get CBDG funding, B, <laughs> if you want the support from the city, and C, um, this is how we should be uh, doing business. And so as a result of such, that's how that's how I conceptualize that. That's incredible. And so, and then in terms of actual impact, what was happening when that program came to life? Yeah. So uh, in terms of impact, um, one of several things. Uh I, as you know, tapped into my, my, my social worker background. And so uh, we immediately, we got a, we connected with the Department of Corrections. I wanted to know every person that was going to be released in the city of Bridgeport within the next six months. In the city of Bridgeport, there were approximately 1,000 people who were released annually. I wanted to capture all, every last one of them. And so what the DOS, Department of Corrections would do is they would send me a report bi-monthly of everyone who was being uh, released. But I instructed my staff um, and I trained them up on how to facilitate what we call the biopsychosocial. You looked at someone's biography, you looked at somebody's psychology, and you looked at somebody's sociology. We didn't do outreach, we did inreach. So we went to the prisons and we facilitated these uh, evaluations with folks. And so that there wasn't a cold contact when people were, were released. There was a face that they can put to a name Hey, go down and see Lewis, go down and see this person, go down and see that person. And it increased our engagement. Um, and we, we had an increase of an engagement uh, of people returning from prison into our, our, our program probably by 600% more 
than what the than what the stakeholders uh, were doing. And it's a it's a principle that is is non sophisticated. My grandmama used to say, "People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care." I love that. For some people, when we when we went walked into those prisons, we were the only visit that they got during the entire tenure of their incarceration. That meant something to them, mm-hmm. even if it meant for somebody to come show up and say, "Hey, we're here to do an evaluation on you because we want to give you a springboard to success rather than perpetuate a trapdoor to failure." And so people responded to that. Um, the other thing that we did was uh, we got resources. That was bus passes. Uh, we got in, we had the mayor convene every CEO in the city, set them at a table, and said the city of Bridgeport is going to give you a tax credit. We're going to give you a work opportunity uh, a, a tax tax credit. We are going to incentivize you to hire people who qualify for employment and you not be dismissive dismissive of them based off of their history. We want to look at them through the eyes of their destiny. That's the second thing that we did. The third thing that we did is that we connected people with uh, bonds or federal insurance bonds. And we let those employers know, hey, look, this person is bonded federally. This person is insured for up to a year. Um, So if you hire this person and if there's a liability issue here, the United States government is going to pick up the tab, whether it's for theft, whether it's for, you know, uh, a broken glass, et cetera, the, the federal government is going to pick up the tab. And also, we made sure that people in the community had a reception for these individuals. What did that reception look like? Sometimes it looked like when, when, when people were released, uh, we got marshals. We got, you know, the, the local clothing store, the local tailor. Uh, we got Subway. We got Chick-fil-A, et cetera, to donate food, to donate care packages and make sure that people, we literally have, would have duffel bags and we would have, make sure that they had hygiene products, that they had, you know, uh, underclothes, et cetera, and make sure that people had a welcome home package. Um, and that's, we got the community invested in these outcomes for these individuals um, who were released. And as a result, through my program, through my program, we only had a 15% overall recidivism rate, 15% out of, out of approximately when I was there uh, two years, I think that we serviced, um, and this wasn't just people who primarily came home from prison. We also serviced people who had been in the community as well. Uh, we had a 15% recidivism rate uh, in two years, and I think that we serviced somewhere around 3,500 folks. Is an incredible number. And for anyone who doesn't know, what's the baseline? When you are dealing with people who have been incarcerated, on average, um, within the first year, there is about a 65% uh, recidivism rate. And within the first three years, there's about a, um, I think that it hovers around 45 to 50%. Yeah. So it's getting down to 15% is massive. And for anyone who doesn't recognize this, for so many people being released from jail and prison, you're leaving with nobody there, with nothing at all, um, and no one to contact. And so having these welcome home packages, having somebody to be able to reach out to, being able to actually take that first step into what life looks like after is huge. It means everything. Look, let me, let me, let me tell you something. As human beings, we remember our first and last. 
So for instance, I may say, Zoe, tell me about the first crush that you had. Tell me about your first kiss, right? You remember that. Tell me about the first time that you ate uh, a cherry pie. You remember that. Tell me about the first time that you rolled a roller coaster. And when, if I say, when was the last time that you saw so-and-so? Oh, I remember it was right before the pandemic. We have a tendency to remember our first and our last. And so when people are released from custody, they remember catalog. Yo, I remember what it was like for me to be released this last time or the first time somebody actually met me at the gate or the first time somebody actually gave me something and really wanted me to succeed. And it's the middle where things get fuzzy at, right? <laughs> but we have a tendency to remember uh, uh, the first uh, the first and the last. And we wanted to make that first impression on folks so that it will be the last time that they found themselves in that situation. That's the notion that I operated off of. I love that. Okay. And so, I mean, this program has amazing success. And then where to from there? So um, I'm in that program for about two years and you know I'm doing my proverbial two-step. And then the, the needle... Uh, is scratched on the record. I'm reincarcerated. I, well, I'm not reincarcerated, but I'm rearrested uh, for child support arrears in part that accrued while I was incarcerated. And so I had to leave the city of Bridgeport under fire, slip into a clinical depression, had to have a suicidal ideation. You know, I, I, I just lose myself. And then probably over the course of, you know, uh, uh, about a year or so, it, it was just hard for me. And then one day I get a call from a guy who I had a vicarious relationship with uh, while I was incarcerated, Glennie Mark. Uh, it says, hey, there's an organization called Cut 50. And there's a guy by the name of Van Jones. And there's this bill called the First Step Act. And I really do think that you could, there could be a value add there. And I'm like, I don't want nothing to do with that. I don't want nothing to do with Van Jones. I want nothing to do with that bill. I, want, I don't even know those people. I'm not doing it. He said, I think that you should take it in, in serious consideration. So I took it into consider serious consideration. Ultimately, I meet Van and what I thought was going to be a, you know, 30 to 45 minute interview in DC with uh, the co-founder, Jessica Jackson, who is now the legal mentor to Kim Kardashian. Um, I thought that was going to just be an easy breezy uh, interview. Uh, it turned into a three hour conversation with Van Jones while Jessica went over to the White House. And... Um, I was ultimately uh, selected for the position as national organizer, came along, uh, and we fought to get what the New York Times ultimately called was the most historic uh, and significant legislation since the 1994 crime bill passed. Uh, three days before the biggest government shutdown in the history of the United States, we did the impossible. We got the Trump administration to sign on, uh, and, and we got a, a bill passed that has impacted more than 17,000 people to date. Not 1,700, not 17 people, 17,000 people that's gotten them released from federal prison to date. Let me quantify those numbers for you. That's more than a half a million human years of freedom restored back to communities. That means more than a half of years of, uh, um, half a million years of birthdays will be celebrated. Bar, mitz uh, uh, bar mitzvahs uh, for children won't be missed. Thanksgiving dinner plates can be served. Christmases can have uh, uh, presents uh, under the tree. And just everyday experiences can be reveled in. More than a half a million years of human freedom restored back into our communities. I'm extremely uh, ecstatic about that. 
Yeah, as you well should be. And can you tell us a little bit more about the bill? Yeah, so the First Step Act was a bill that was a bipartisan bill that was passed uh, into law in two, uh, December of 2018. And some of the provisions, um, and it, it, it effectuated uh, folks on the federal level, some of the provisions in the bill are as followed. Uh, number one, women who are incarcerated on the federal level, they will no longer be shackled while they are uh, uh, in delivery and postpartum. You would literally think that it shouldn't take an act of Congress to do so, but <laughs> it did. Uh, the second thing is, is that the crack cocaine disparity, um, you probably remember or our, our viewing and our listening audience probably remembers that um, there was a lot of uh, a conversation around crack cocaine disparity and it disproportionately impacted uh, uh, communities of color. So back in 2010, when the Obama administration reduced the ratio from 100 to 1 down to 18 to 1, essentially it left a lot of people behind because it wasn't retroactive. And so while the law was fixed, it wasn't fair because it left people behind who had been convicted prior to 2010. So what we did was in the First Step Act, we said, hey, let's not just fix the law, but let's make it fair and let's make it retroactive and, and made it retroactive. And it, it literally released people from uh, life sentences immediately. Uh, the third thing that it did, it put people within 500 driving miles of their last known address to foster family unification, uh, et cetera. Another thing that it did, it called for more programming for people who are incarcerated. And it also made provisions for people like me who had been former, who are formerly incarcerated to go back into prisons and to really uh, uh, facilitate courses, et cetera. And last but not least, um, there are other, other provisions as well, but the, I, I think that another uh, key provision is that it provided identification cards for people who are, are who are uh, being released from custody. I'm going to tell you a quick story. When you're incarcerated, uh, the identification card that you get is property of the United States government. And when I was released, I took my identification card and I snuck it out of the prison in the bottom of my shoe. You may say, why did you have to sneak that out of, out of prison? I'm glad that you asked that question because I'm going to give you the answer. I had to sneak it out because when you leave, you have to turn in all property that the government gave you back to the institution. I wanted an identification so that I could have a sense of somebodyness when I was in, in society, even if that somebodyness meant a reflection of me having served nearly 14 years in federal prison. And I don't think that people understand that the last professional headshot that a lot of people who are incarcerated or the first professional headshot that people took was their mugshot, was their prison ID. And so to be able to give someone an identification card, it validates that I'm a person again. I'm a person again. I, I, I'm someone who is, you know, that the state of Connecticut recognizes or I'm someone who the state of New York recognizes or whatever respective state that people are being released to, that they are somebody. Uh, when I, it reminds me of, of this uh, affirmation that we used to have to say when I was a kid and in, 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 in uh, a grammar school, I am somebody. I walk tall, I talk tall, I stand tall. I treat others as I want to be treated. I am somebody. And giving somebody uh, an identification, it lets them know that they are somebody. Yeah. And we heard a little bit about the impact of having like a parole ID from Cost Marte earlier in the season and what that meant about, you know, trying to get home. And the only ID the, he was able to use was his 
parole ID, which is, you know, just another way of labeling. Yeah, without question. I mean, you have to consider we live in a post 9-11 world where you can be accosted by the police. They can ask you for identification and imagine what that's like for someone who is on a bus, let's say, for instance, being released from prison. And if there is some suspicious activity on the bus and if the, that bus got stopped and the police asked someone for their identification card, technically, because you have police contact, you could be remanded back into custody. A condition of release is not to have police contact. And so if I am out and about and I don't have identification and I'm accosted by the police and I am under supervision of some kind, that's police contact. And that can put me right back in due to a technical violation. Mm-hmm. And so it means something to be able to have identification. What are the gaps that still exist in, I mean, there are so many things that need to be reformed about the system overall, but when we're looking specifically at reentry and how to support people and transitioning back into the community, what are the gaps that still exist, the, the most significant ones? Housing, mental health. You know, one of the things that I would ask people um, when we were doing a biopsychosocials on folks was when was the last time you used? And they mm-hmm. would say, oh, three years ago. How long have you been incarcerated? Three years. Well, you probably haven't used because you've been in a controlled environment. And so we need to connect you with some type of support, uh, recovery support, even if that's through just through a peer a support specialist, et cetera. You need to be connected with someone who's going to hold you responsible to your sobriety and also um, hold you accountable uh, to your recovery as well. So I, I would add that. And the third thing is, is employment. Um, it, it's interesting. It's, it's so very interesting how the same industries um, that locked people with felony convictions out prior to the pandemic had no compunction about hiring people who had felony convictions during the pandemic, frontline, so-called frontline workers, uh, people who, who were working in retail and people who were um, you know, at gas stations, it, it, it's just, it just, it's, it's so interesting how society can, can form when it's convenient for, for them. And I think mm-hmm. as a result of such, um, speaking to the employment piece, I think that as a result of such people who have been impacted by the system, more than 70 million, by the way, have criminal histories in the United States of America, 70 million, 70 million, um, are living in our communities with, 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 with criminal histories. I think that those individuals rose to the occasion. And as a result of rising to the occasion, I think that it's going to change the corporate conversation about how we bring people who have been impacted by the criminal legal system. And third, I think that, you know, I'm a policy guy. I'm a policy advocate. I think that we need some form of a a, a national clean slate act. A version of of a national clean slate act in my mind essentially is, for instance, if someone um, has not had a criminal conviction um, for a misdemeanor con- uh, uh, offense, let's say, for instance, for a year or felony conv- uh, 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 c- conviction, um, let's say, for instance, three years, then that shouldn't be held against them. Their, their criminal history should automatically be expunged from public, um, from public record. And uh, if, if that person qualifies for employment, that person should be strongly cons- considered as a candidate. It's brilliant. A true second chance. Yeah, without question. Yeah. Without question. Okay, so... Two questions I have left for you. One is I've kind of thought about 
the stigma that people who are being released face as like almost this name tag. The parole idea is kind of a perfect example. You know, those hello, my name is name tags. And it's like, hello, my name is, you know, whatever you were convicted for the time that you just did in prison, whatever that is. And if you could go back to, you know, the day that you walked out of prison and instead of having that name tag, have whatever it was that you wanted people to see in you and who you are, what would you have wanted it to say? Hello, my name is Lewis L. Reed. Yeah. And when you ask, who is Lewis? I'm a father. Mm-hmm. I'm a son. Somebody loves me. Yeah. I'm a human being. Somebody loves me. I'm not, I, I don't want you to call me a, a label. I want you to call me by my name. Yeah. Simply. I want you to call yeah. me by my name. And my, and my name embodies and it personifies um, just so many things. I'm a friend. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm an activist. Um, that's part and parcel of what I what I what I do. But ultimately, I'm a human being. And if I would not weren't, weren't none of those things, if I wasn't an activist, if I wasn't an advocate, if I wasn't a father, if I wasn't, you know, uh, somebody's baby daddy, uh, <laughs> right? If I if I wasn't if I wasn't any of those things, I'm still a human being. I'm yeah. created in the likeness and the image of God, and I want to be treated as such. Thank you. Last question for you is tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now, where we can find you and how people can support. Yeah. So um, I'm working uh, with the Reform Alliance. Uh, The Reform Alliance is co-founded by Jay-Z, Meek Mill, based off of his experience of having been uh, impacted by probation. Uh, I'm the senior director of memberships and partnerships. And uh, it's our goal to grow our membership, um, people who want to be connected with us, people who want to uh, essentially transform our criminal legal system, specifically as it relates to probation and parole. We want you to be connected with us. Uh, you may say, Lewis, how can I be connected with you? I'm glad that you asked that question. You could do one of two things. You could either text the word reform to 81411. Let me say that one more time. Text the word reform to 81411. Uh, you'll stay connected with Jay-Z and the entire family. Uh, and or you can just follow me on social media and shoot me a DM uh, on any social media channel at Lewis L. Reed. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Lewis L. Reed. Uh, it might show up as he inspires for real, but disregard that. I'm, I'm uh, Lewis L., at Lewis L. Reed, L-O-U-I-S, the letter L-R-E-E-D, uh, on Twitter at Lewis L. Reed and or on Facebook. So just shoot me a DM and let's, and let's make sure that we stay connected. Uh, let me say last but not least, uh, I want to end on this note. That five-year-old child, that then five-year-old child who was shot in the shoulder last year during the pandemic, he ended up watching an episode uh, of The Redemption Project. Um, it's a restorative justice docu-series that Van Jones produced on CNN. He ended up watching it, saw an episode of where this individual who was in Oakland, California, participated in a shooting um, that left a 16-year-old girl, unfortunately, with a loss of life. He saw that he was so moved to tears. He said, wow, man, I wish that could happen with me. The person who happened to be in the room with him went to the bathroom and called me and said, I am in the room with the person that you had harmed um, when he was five years old, who I knew, by the way, I knew his parents, et cetera. And he said, this now 25 year old man is so moved um, by what happened. He wants that to be his lot in life. And ultimately we end up meeting, we end up reconciling, and we are literally in contact, if not every day, every other day. Uh, And it just goes to show that there is something good that can come out of Nazareth. 
like how they said what about Jesus? Is there anything that good that can come out of Nazareth? Um, is there anything that good that can come out of the uh, four walls of an institution or out of a nine digit federal registration number? Is there any love that can come out? Is there any grace? Is there any mercy? Is there any forgiveness? Is there any uh, redemption that can come out? And the response that people had about Jesus was come and see. And that is what I want to leave our audience with. Is there any good that can come out of our criminal legal system? And my charge to you is come and see. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.